Well, I imagine that you know that the Bible that you hold on your lap has two parts. It has a part that we consider old and a part that we consider new. We call them uh, testaments. The Old Testament and the New Testament. (laughs) And it's not always easy to know what exactly to do with the Old Testament. I suspect that if you're like me, you've heard a number of opinions, and you might even hold some of them yourselves, about what you ought to do with the Old Testament. It was a few years ago that a very prominent pastor suggested that the Christian church needed to unhitch from the Old Testament, that the Old Testament was holding the church back from truly understanding the gospel. And at the same time, you are probably also aware that there are Messianic Jewish congregations that exist because they don't believe the church in large pays enough attention to the Old Testament feasts and covenant uh, relationships and practices, and so they want to do more Old Testament things in the church. And so here we are, (laughs) trying to be normal. Wondering, do I need to pay attention to the Old Testament law? Do I still need to keep the Ten Commandments? Can you, in fact, read the Old Testament with the confidence that God has something there for you? And if so, what is it? Even though these are very contemporary issues and you see them all the time, uh, they, uh, they are not new. One of the earliest controversies in the history of the church was led by someone named Marcion. He viewed the Old Testament as the product of a different and inferior God, and he wanted to protect the gospel of Jesus and have the church only use the New Testament. And it took uh, the church a long time to talk about that and to land where it has, where there is an Old Testament and New Testament that are both trustworthy guides to what God is doing in the world. But the truth of the matter isn't that he was first. Marcion was not the first one to ask questions about the Old Testament. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, we're beginning this morning the, the body, you might say, of the Sermon on the Mount, or the first point in the Sermon on the Mount. And this first point that Jesus gives in His sermon answers the accusation against Jesus that Jesus Himself is trying to abolish the Old Testament. There is concern that Jesus himself is trying to erase the law and make it not count for his followers. Which is, it's really seems crazy to me that that's how the sermon begins. That the very first thing Jesus wants to address in, in, in the substance of his sermon is, I'm not doing what you think I'm doing. I'm not trying to get rid of the law. And I, I, I think that 
were uh, hinted, that this hints to us, uh, there's a hint at the end of the sermon, that's what I want to say, in Matthew chapter 7, that tells us why people thought that. It says, when Jesus finished these things, or when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And it was the authority with which Jesus spoke about himself and about God and about the Scriptures that made them think, well, maybe he's uh, trying to change things around. Maybe he's trying to get rid of the Old Testament law or Scriptures. It made them wonder if he didn't hold them in high esteem like all their other teachers did. And so that is his first point. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, if you want to look there, we'll see that Jesus fulfills the law rather than abolishes it so that his people might hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here, very simply, Jesus says he fulfills the law, not abolishes it, so that the righteousness of his followers might be established. So the first thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus claims to fulfill the law rather than to dispense with it. He fulfills the law and the prophets. Fulfillment is a major theme in Matthew's Gospel. And it may be the main theme. If for some reason we're here in the Sermon on the Mount and you haven't thought about it or have forgotten it, I can certainly understand that. I mean, we took a little break in the summer. But in the first part, in the Christmas story, we see this over and over and over that Jesus fulfills. In fact, this is the seventh time in four and a half, verse, four and a half chapters that the word fulfill or fulfillment is used. And so I thought it would be worth stepping back and reviewing that because they give us a hint as to what Jesus means when he says, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. So in chapter 1, uh, you can look at these yourself if you want. Chapter 1, verse 22, it says, All this took place to 
fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This took place to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled God's desire in creation that people who bear His image would be with Him and that He would be with them. And He came and fulfilled Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. And if you were to look at Hosea where that uh, citation is from, you would say, this doesn't seem like a prof- prophecy. In fact, that's the way we, t- we treat it, right? We expect that somehow somebody said, they looked at their watch and said, well, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to be here at this time. He's going to do this. And we want it to be just this clear that that's what Jesus fulfills. But the prophet suggests that like God drew Israel out of Egypt so that they might be redeemed and so that the world might know that Yahweh is the God above all gods. Like that, Jesus came on the scene that all the world might know that the God of Israel is the true God. And that all the nations might be drawn to Him. In other words, Jesus fulfills all that Israel was supposed to do. Then, in in verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And again, we read the Christmas story and that's that's quoted about Herod's destruction of the children in Bethlehem. And we think, how was that what um, the prophecy in Jeremiah was about? Well, the prophecy in Jeremiah was in chapter 31 which talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and then the new covenant that God promised to establish with His people. And we're told that Jesus fulfills that. That the coming of this child now is the fulfillment of God's new covenant. And we'll see what that new covenant has to say in a few moments. Then it says in verse 23 of chapter 2, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. We recognize that this was right after, of course, the Herod killed the children and drove um, Joseph and his family to Egypt and then they went up to Nazareth and Jesus is in exile like the people of Israel had been in exile. And 
Jesus, again, fulfilling all that God was going to do in Israel in bringing His people home. Where That's hinted at here in the fulfillment in chapter 2, verse 23. Then chapter 3, 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So in chapter 3, he's talking about his baptism. He and uh, John and Jesus have this little argument. Uh, John says, I shouldn't baptize you. Jesus says, you should. And then the reason Jesus gives is this will fulfill all righteousness. In other words, for me to submit to God in this way will fulfill and conform to God's nature and will. All that God desires, Jesus fulfilled. It's very much a hint for what we find in our passage in chapter 5. So that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Sounds very much like fulfilling the law. And then, uh, one more time, in uh, chapter fourteen, of verse uh, chapter four, verse fourteen. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And you're probably thinking, is he just? Oh, is he going to read the whole book of Matthew to me? The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. Jesus has come that this might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus fulfills God's intent to bring life in the midst of death. Jesus fulfills God's intent to invade the darkness with the light. God again is fulfilling all that He has said He would do throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus concludes then by saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if Jesus does fulfill all that God has talked about, if Jesus does do that, and is the pinnacle of the expression of all that God is doing in the world, what do you do? Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which simply means you need to turn away from your own attempts to fulfill the law. You need to turn away from your own sin and turn to Jesus. Because it is a clear signal that Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven. So you could say Jesus fulfills the law because the law points to Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus helped two separate sets of disciples. He opened their eyes so that they could see that Moses and the law spoke of him. Jesus fulfills the law in that the righteous demands of God's law find their expression in Him. He fulfills all righteousness. His kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness. 
Jesus fulfills the law in that the demands of the law uh, find their completion in him. There is no moral expectation that God has that Jesus did not fulfill. And the easiest of all, really, is to say that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law in that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament law find their uh, culmination and purpose in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so it is a bold claim for Jesus to say, I fulfill the law. What you need from the law, you will find in me. That's what Jesus is saying. He is teaching with authority. That said, we also need to, to, to take a look at the flip side. The flip side being that Jesus does not abolish the law. The negative side is that he, uh, that he does not render the law uh, unnecessary. He fulfills it instead. And so in verse 18, he expounds on the, uh, the prospect that he is abolishing it. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I think this is Jesus sort of putting... Uh, an exclamation point on the fact he's not going to abolish it. In fact, it will remain, and not a single letter, that's an iota, it's the smallest Hebrew letter, or not a dot, like a dot over an eye, or the smallest stroke of a pen in a Hebrew letter, not any of that will pass away until the law is accomplished. That's a very interesting word, isn't it? The law is accomplished. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But Jesus is saying, don't think it's passing away. Don't think that I'm here to tell you that the law has no purpose in your life. So much so then, he goes to verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so, not only is the law going to last, but Jesus is not going to give anyone the slightest excuse to relax the law. Think about that. The point of following Jesus is not to find a way around the law of God. The point of following Jesus is not so that you don't have to keep the law. But rather, Jesus says, there's going to be someone least in the kingdom of heaven, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is to reinforce the idea that Jesus has no intention of undoing the law relaxing it, or somehow changing its purpose. Now this ought to just give you pause, right? It gives me pause. Because I know there are a lot of things in there that I'm not paying very good attention to. 
I know that the law contains a lot of things that I kind of want to explain away and say, well, that's not for me, or that's not for now, or that was back then. But, (laughs) if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll notice that you just can't do that. Because Jesus says, you have heard, don't murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry. Jesus says, you've heard, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust. Don't desire someone in your heart. And it's like, that is anything but relaxed, isn't it? In fact, that is turned up. What if Jesus is here to turn up the law? I just sort of want to let you sit with that for a minute. Because this, this should be pretty stressful. And that's what brings us to verse 20. Because the point... And this we have, we have to struggle with this point. The point is not that Jesus promotes a self-satisfied um, external conformity to God's law where we go point by point by point, check, 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 check. But Jesus is recognizing here that the requirement of the law is an internal response of love and faith toward God, who is the giver of the law. And he says, till all is accomplished. I'm not going to pass away till all is accomplished. Well, what is that law to accomplish? I think, I think what Jesus has in mind is this new covenant, this, this new covenant that I mentioned earlier. Because the new covenant says this, it's from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I think what Jesus is saying is that what the law is to accomplish, it can only accomplish when it is written on your hearts. The law can only do what the law is supposed to do when it affects your heart, not merely your behavior. What the law is meant to accomplish is this union between us and God. That God will be our God and we will be His people. And it's worth acknowledging this is a very different approach to the law than anyone at the time was taking. And Jesus wants to point that out. So that's what verse 20 says. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, you have to ask the question, don't you? What do you have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? How far do you have to go to enter the kingdom of heaven? Again, I want to remind you that this whole sermon is an explanation of Jesus' command, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How far I need to go is that I need to turn from my own self-righteousness to Jesus as my righteousness. I need to use, in using Jesus' words, hunger and thirst for righteousness with the promise that in fact I'll be satisfied. There is a longing to be righteous. Not to be self-congratulatory or somehow excused or somehow meet some benchmark, but to actually be righteous in a transformative way. That's hungering and thirsting. And if you hunger and thirst, you will be filled. If you simply say, I'm going to check my boxes, you will never approach the righteousness Jesus is after. And so Jesus says, unless you exceed the righteousness, your righteousness exceeds that of the the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I have to say, who is he talking about? And if I ask, who is he talking about? The answer is Jesus is talking about me. Jesus is talking about you. Because when we hear that, maybe it strikes you differently, but when I hear that, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, (laughs) I give myself away. I tip my hand because when I hear him say that, I think, why try? There is no way. These guys are professionals at being righteous. It would be like Jesus saying, tell you what, you can be on my team if you can score 100 points in an NBA game. I suspect there are some of you who would say, I'd like to try. But there's probably more of you saying, what would be the point of trying? Well, I think the reality is we've all been trying. We've all been trying to do our best to live in a way that makes God like us better. We've been doing our best. We've been trying to measure up. We've been grinding. And we approach our religion like it's something we work at. After all, I mean, think about it. This is how we determine who's in and who's out, right? Do they meet some external benchmarks? Do they come to church often enough? Do they go to life group? Do they fill in the blank, right? You probably have your own. Because we want to know who's in and who's out. 
But more importantly, we want to we wanna know, am I in or am I out? That really is the question. Am I in or am I out? And you just have to recognize that Jesus here is saying, if you want to play that game, let me tell you how well you have to play it. Let me tell you how good you have to be at that game, better than the scribes and Pharisees. But really, when Jesus talks about a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, He's talking about something that is foreign to them. He is talking about a different kind of righteousness than they have. They have a pride-inducing, self-congratulating, external kind of righteousness that looks good before people and they expect will look good to God. And you will never do better than them at that. But when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he's talking about an internal righteousness. This righteousness that comes from the law being written on your hearts. It is a righteousness that causes me to hunger and thirst to be conformed to who God is. This righteousness that Jesus is talking about is greater in kind, not merely in degree. It is a completely, it is a righteousness completely other than what the scribes and Pharisees have. Not simply righteousness that is the same kind and more than they have. It would probably be helpful to talk, to, to define what I'm talking about when I talk about righteousness. Righteousness according to one commentator, is the whole person behavior that conforms to God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. The whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. In other words, if it's a whole person, it means that it issues from the heart. It doesn't start on the outside trying to measure up or trying to look at some Old Testament law and say, am I doing that? Or drawing some line saying, this is the Old Testament law, so I don't want to get close to it, so I'm going to make a law back here so that I don't cross that line. That's what the Pharisees had done. That's what so many of us do. We create these secondary things that somehow protect us from crossing the line of God's law so that we only have to conform to it externally rather than have our hearts transformed and respond from the heart. You see, the rest of this chapter goes on to say that God cares about the heart, not just the performance. The inner person must respond to God's nature, will, and coming kingdom before the external person does. Even hearing that, right, we respond like Pharisees with unbelief. I mean, Jesus says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. 
I say don't even be angry. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. I say don't even lust. And I want to say, who do you think I am? I can't do that. I mean, I'm doing all I can not to murder someone as it is. Welcome to Phariseeville. Because the point of all of this is that God desires a righteousness that is internal, that desires to be more righteous still. He desires a righteousness that hungers and thirsts for more righteousness. He does not desire people who go about checking boxes, attaining thresholds, or trying to be good enough. It's about hungering and thirsting to be right with God. Now, the irony of it is, Jesus Jesus is saying, I'm not abolishing the law. And he can say that with complete credibility because this is throughout the Old Testament. It's just that people miss it. The Pharisees miss it. We miss it. We hear law and we think, oh, no. I can't keep it. Or I'm going to try harder. But if you look in your Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, this same language is used. Just in my my Bible reading this morning, in Psalm 119, David prayed this. He said, Incline my heart to your commands. Incline my heart to your commands. It wasn't, God, I, I got to do better and, and I got I to gotta start meeting your standard. It's, God, my heart's not right. Transform my heart such that I don't even want to murder somebody. Transform my heart so that I don't desire anything or anyone beside you. That heart language is everywhere. Repeatedly, he says, I love your law. None of us love a law that has its thumb on us making us behave better and taking all the fun out of life. That's not what the law is to do, though that's what the Pharisees did. And that's the way we respond to it initially, isn't it? Again, in Psalm 119, with my whole heart I seek you. That's what God is after in the law. That's what God is after in the prophets. He's after this wholehearted, whole person response to who He is that is unsatisfied unless they have more of Him. This whole person response that is unsatisfied unless they're closer with Jesus. And there you go. That's what Jesus fulfilled when he said he fulfilled the law. The true intent of the law. He conformed. He conformed himself to this both heart and body and complete person response to who God is, to his will and to his kingdom. And it is because Jesus fulfilled the law that he can demand that we conform to that internal 
heartfelt response of love to Him. It is because Jesus fulfilled the law that He has earned the right to incline our hearts and to woo our hearts and to ask us to give up any shred of self-effort and to come to Him poor in spirit. The reality is that when you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And so many of us ask the wrong question most of the time. Do I have to do this? Do I have to keep this? Is what I'm doing going to meet the requirements of the law? And we're, we're trying to act out instead of trying to internalize. We're asking the question, how good do I have to be? How much of the Old Testament applies to me? When, in fact, the right question would be, how do I get united to Jesus who perfectly fulfills this law? How do I get united to Jesus in such a way that I will hunger and thirst for righteousness? The great thing is the answer is just as simple as the question. Too simple for most of us. Because I'm united to Jesus by grace through faith. I must believe Jesus is the true King if I'm going to live as a citizen in His kingdom. I have to believe and accept Jesus' invitation into this new way of living in His kingdom. Which means I have to give up any way of living that's going to prove myself or make me look good. There is a new way of being human that Jesus invites us to. You come to this King by faith that He will include you in His kingdom when you do. You can't operate in His kingdom, though, the way you're used to operating. That's some of why He contrasts it with the scribes and Pharisees. You must have this internal response of faith and love for this King. You must desire Him more than you desire to stay out of trouble. or More than you desire to keep Him from being angry with you. You must desire to belong to Him completely. This is the new covenant that Jesus Himself fulfills. I will put My law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be My people. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you grant us faith to trust Jesus, grant us humility to come to Jesus. And Father, as we do, would you transform us from religious performers, from guilty sinners, to kingdom people. People for whom the law is our delight because it's written on our hearts and fulfilled in Jesus. Would you grant that Jesus is the desire of our hearts today? We ask it in His name. Amen.